Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. This show may contain adult language and themes. Listener discretion is advised. With that out of the way, let's start the show. You're listening to the Murder Is My Sign podcast, the podcast where we talk true crime and astrology. I'm your host, Jordy Death, here to let your way through the true crime astrology storm. Well, who would have thought that it would take four episodes to talk about a guy who only killed two people, but yet here we are. I mean, let's be real. It's really because Ed Gein is from Wisconsin, and this is a beautiful state, the land of dairy and beer, the land that I love. Gotta go whole hog on the home state representation. I mean, come on. So over the course of the last three episodes, we've covered the mythology of the sign of Virgo, which, you know, I feel like we really haven't talked much about the sign to the point where we might have even uh, forgotten that the whole series on Ed Gein is with the sign of Virgo. But that is okay, because we will be covering Gein's birth chart and more of the characteristics in this episode, because I am bound and determined that this should be the coup de gras, the final installment of Ed Gein, Vile Virgo. Even though I know we're fully in Libra season right now, but don't you worry, guys. The Libra episode and the finale of Murder is My Sign will be brought to you in just a couple of weeks. Stay tuned for that. Anywho, uh, we also talked about Ed Gein's parents growing up in lacrosse and and then moving to Plainfield, Wisconsin, where Eddie completed the eighth grade and grew up under the tyrannical, religiously fanatical dictatorship of his mother, Augusta who he loved more than anyone in the world. Unfortunately for Ed, the family died off one by one. His deadbeat alcoholic father that no one missed, George, was first, and then dear old brother Henry in that very mysterious brush fire accident. And finally, Mama Augusta suffering that fatal stroke. Not because she witnessed some fucker beating a poor puppy to death, no. Not that. It was the whore of Babylon that lived with him in the same house out of wedlock that did her in. At least, that's what Eddie blames. So Eddie, all alone in a sad, darkened world, turns to fill the void of loneliness with his horrible, Nazi, true crime, Martha Stewart-esque erotica, and gallivants to the local cemeteries to dig up a date, where, you know, 
supplies for his various craft projects. A boisterous tavern owner, Mary Hogan, disappears. And then a few years later, hardware store owner, Bernice Warden, disappears only to be found dead and gutted like a deer in the summer kitchen of Ed Gein's farmhouse. Eddie is now in jail on a $10,000 bond and has just confessed to killing Bernice Warden. And when asked about the various bits, bobs, and body parts that were found at his house, he mentioned that he didn't kill anyone. He dug them up. Yet no one fucking believes him. They can come to terms with the fact that this 51-year-old quiet man killed two women because Mary Hogan's head was found in his kitchen. They can even believe that Eddie made a skin suit that he would actually wear. But no, no, the, the people of Plainfield fucking Wisconsin just cannot wrap their delicate little small town minds around the fact that Eddie Gein could actually go to a cemetery and dig up a grave, open a casket, and take whatever pretty parts that pleased him. No. No, because that, that would be ridiculous. Oh, and let's not forget the shit show circus that has come to town with the army of reporters flocking to Plainfield to interview the dullards of the town who have no idea what the fuck is actually going on with the investigation. And it was because of the shitty journalism and the crazy-ass townsfolk who would do anything for their five seconds of fame that the mythology surrounding Gein led to people believing that he was a cannibal, serial killer, and necrophile. I mean, can you guys hear my eyes rolling? Oh, God, I sort of, if I, if I could, if I rolled my eyes any harder, they would get stuck in the back of my head. Granted, now, granted, there is a gray area about the whole necrophile, but um, Gein never truly admitted to fornicating with the dead, but given what he did to the bodies, the whole skin suit and putting a dead woman's preserved vagina over his penis, um, of course, his love for the dead, you know, by going to the cemeteries, that alone and, and, and doing what he did was was and is enough to qualify him for gold membership in the Necrophile Anonymous Club, where Albert Fish is club president and Jeffrey Dahmer is secretary and treasurer. <laughs> Excellent. Keep in mind, folks, though, it is the late 1950s when all this went down. I'm curious if anyone is still living in Plainfield from when this whole thing happened. Granted, if you ever do go visit Plainfield, please, please, please be respectful of the community. And from what I've heard, people are still sensitive to Ed Gein and what he did. And rightfully so, it was and still is a truly horrific event that marked this tiny little town forever. So that's where we are in this final installment in the tail end of Ed's confession and the looming trial that's about to happen. We continue. Eddie was taken to the crime lab headquarters, located in Madison, and altogether had been questioned for just under nine hours. He was even hooked up to a lie detector, even though that only took just over a half an hour over the course of two days. Polygraph specialist at the crime lab, Joel Vilmowski, was the one who helped conduct the interviews and would talk and alternately quiz Gein on the details of the crimes that he had committed. And Eddie did his best to answer with what he was able or willing to recall. Throughout the questioning, Eddie didn't show any signs of remorse or really any comprehension of the enormity of what he had done. 
He didn't come off as a cold-blooded killer. In fact, he was on the opposite side of the spectrum by being incredibly friendly and cooperative, to the point of being almost over-eager to please. This put Wilimowski in a harder position as to not put words into Eddie's mouth. He admitted to some of the most extreme perversions cheerfully in his bid to please Wilimowski with his questions. Here is a small portion of the interviews. Do you have any recollection, Eddie, of taking any of those female body parts, uh, the vagina specifically, and holding it over your penis to cover the penis? Oh, I, I, I believe that's true. You, do you recall doing that with the vaginas of the bodies of other women? That, that I, I believe I do remember. That, that's right. Would you ever put on a pair of women's panties over your body and then put some of these vaginas over your penis? Oh, that, that could be. I, I, I sincerely apologize for the terrible voice work of Lomowski and Ed Gein, but it's a, it's a one-woman shit show over here, folks, and I'm just working with what our dark lord and savior Lucifer has gifted me. Anywho, <laughs> uh, but, as, but as forthcoming as he was about what he did in his free time with the body parts, he was less than forthcoming when it came to the actual murders that he had committed, which to some made him seem not as crazy as he appeared. Of course, you're going to have to. You're, of course, you're going to have people who think that he's just insane, and others who think that Ed Gein is a criminal mastermind, which is kind of a fucking laugh when you think about it. But to those who actually met the ghoul of Plainfield, they were left scratching their heads at Ed's childlike simplicity and his monstrous and ghoulish criminality. Perhaps one of the best descriptors of this contradiction of, of thought was when someone described Gein as an idiot savant of the macabre, a genius at the ghoulish things he did, but in anything else, an innocent. As the interviews with Wilimowski continued, Eddie divulged that he would wear the face masks that he had created from stripping the faces off of a woman's skull and putting it over his own face. He had, the, he had procured them through digging up graves. And after his various trips to the cemetery, he had enough parts and pieces to construct his own skin suit that he would wear and trapeze in the moonlight late at night. This comprised of leggings that he would slip into, a vagina that he would tie around his penis, a mammary-like vest that was comprised of the upper torso of a middle-aged woman, complete with breasts, a nipple belt. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) I know I started a little bit there, but no, that's right. Uh, A belt made of nipples, (laughs) Uh, a mask made of a woman's face, uh, and very crudely put together, I imagine. I mean... You gotta think about it. With Eddie's IQ and everything, he probably didn't have, like, the sewing skills that, say, you know, Buffalo Bill did, um, you know, with the sewing machine and, you know, experience. Granted, granted, you know, Buffalo Bill is a fictionalized depiction of Gein, but, and and I would think that the, the depiction of Leatherface from Texas Chainsaw Massacre is perhaps a little bit more on par to, um, with what Ed Gein looked like with the quality of his handiwork and, you know, when when he decided to get all feisty, sexy, if you will, when he wanted to dress up. 
Anyone else kind of like dry, just drive heaving at the at the thought of that? Huh. So, all the while Eddie is being interviewed and questioned about his arts and crafts and extracurricular nocturnal visits, uh, he would pause from time to time to complain about how hungry he was getting and wanting something to eat. And this is the part that just gets me. Someone, someone presented him with a slice of apple pie and a chunk of cheddar cheese. And Eddie ate and spoke of his skull bowls and how he tried to preserve the vulvas by sprinkling salt and painting them with silver, and then proceeded to complain about the dryness of the cheese. Christ on rye. Dried cheddar cheese in my state? No, thank you, good sir. Take this abomination away and give me my pork and beans in my special bowl, and then I should say good day to you, sir. I say good day! For real, though, maybe this is my age showing or lack thereof, but until I read this book, uh, Deviant by Harold Truder, um, I had never in all my 28 years of life heard of anyone eating apple pie with a chunk of cheddar cheese. I mean, I get that apples and cheese can be paired together with other accoutrement, um, usually at a wine tasting or whatever, but pie, to me, that's a little weird. But before anyone blows up my Twitter with their lambasting, I will fully admit that I have not tried this combination. I'm more than happy to should anyone provide it, uh, but I won't be going out of my way to indulge in this seemingly very Wisconsin delicacy. But getting back to it, so as you're all familiar with, and I, I used to be a funeral director, so surprise, surprise, um, imagine my delight when Harold Truder described in delightful detail the funeral service of Bernice Warden in his book Deviant. The little town of Plainfield basically shut down for Bernice's funeral. More than 200 people filed into the First Methodist Church. Friends, relatives, neighbors, reporters. I, I was surprised to read that she ended up having an open casket viewing. Ray Colt was the mortician who did the arrangements and the embalming and apparently had some skill, which back in the day, I'm not terribly surprised. Embalming is slowly becoming a lost art as more and more people choose direct cremation or services where the body will not be present. And along with that, you also lose the skills necessary to do restorative art. When I was in mortuary school, we had a restorative art class, and our big project was to create our own likeness out of plastic skull using clay, wax, and cosmetics. It was incredibly difficult, but also oddly fun. You know, maybe Ging did have a point to the whole arts and crafts and death thing being a fun hobby. Hmm... Anywho, uh, Reverend Gerald Tanquist presided over the funeral and Mrs. Clifford Tubbs sang a beautiful rendition of Abide By Me. Mrs. Warden was a member of the Order of the Eastern Star, a Masonic offshoot organization of the Freemasons, aka the Latter-day Illuminati, and the local chapter conducted their own funeral rites. And I've seen Masonic and Eastern Star funeral rites performed, and they are pretty cool, I have to admit. And for a brief period of time, I even considered wanting to join the Order of the Eastern Star, because, you know, funeral directors love those fraternal organizations. But in order to be one, you need to have a family member or be married to someone who's a Freemason. And, well, gee, golly gosh, no one in my family was a Mason. So, <sighs> perhaps in a different lifetime. Anywho, that's neither here nor there. Um, after the services, the casket was carried outside to the hearse and drove slowly down Main Street, past the hardware store where she had that she had owned and run, 
and out to the Plainfield Cemetery, which was west of town. There, she was interred alongside her husband, who had passed away in 1931. And that had concluded the funeral service for Bernice Warden. 24 hours after arriving in Madison, Eddie was taken back to Watoma in the back of a police car, which is about an hour and a half north of Madison. Once the police car left, Charlie Wilson gave a very quick press release to the reporters outside regarding the polygraph findings. Here is his statement. The lie detector tests of Edward Gein have now been completed. And after consultation with several interested district attorneys, we are able at this time to state that the results of the tests referred to eliminate the subject of Edward, 51 years old, as a person responsible for and or involved in the disappearance of Evelyn Hartley in La Crosse County on October 24, 1953. The disappearance of Georgia Jean Weckler in Jefferson County on May 1, 1947, and Victor Travis in Adams County, November 1, 1952. Mr. Gein has now been admitted that he is responsible for the deaths of Mary Hogan in Portage County on December 8, 1954, and Bernice Warden in Washera County, November 16, 1957. This release jointly concurred in by the interested local officials and being made to eliminate Mr. Gein from unnecessary suspicion and conjecture. A startling offshoot revelation was mentioned in the book following this statement. A 37-year-old woman, Mrs. Christine Selvo, from Carlinville, Illinois, had been searching for her mother, who had abandoned her 27 years earlier which left her to be raised by foster parents. She had managed to trace her mother's movements from Springfield to to Gillette to Chicago all the way up to Pine Grove, Wisconsin. With Mr. Wilson's official confirmation of Ed Gein's guilt and the death of Mary Hogan, Christine's search was over before she had any real resolution, for Mary Hogan was her mother. Talk about a small world. Once Eddie was back in his jail cell in Wilshire County, he had dinner of roast lamb, mashed potatoes, canned corn, salad, apple pie, and coffee. I don't know if there's cheese served with the apple pie, but I'm assuming no. This guy actually ate better being locked up than I think he ever did um, free on his own. And it makes sense. He was actually being taken care of instead of being left to his own devices. He met with his attorney, William Bettler who told Eddie that he planned to enter a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity, to which Gein nodded with agreement because he was always willing to go along with a good suggestion. Eddie mentioned that Joseph Flomowski, Joe, as Eddie liked to call him, had been very nice while interrogating him and had not tricked him into saying anything he did not mean. He even went as far as to say that talking to Joe helped clear his mind. Someone present at the interrogation leaked information to the press, and the Chicago Tribune Tribune wrote a story with the headline, Obsessive Love for His Mother Drove Gein to Slay. Rob Graves' ghoulish acts were stirred by her death. He thought victims resembled parent. Authorities learn during quizzing. I mean, goddamn, that is a long-ass headline for a newspaper, even if it is front-page news. The article went into detail of how Eddie skinned and made his suits of flesh, and how all this stemmed from an Oedipus complex, which apparently occurred 
uh, accounted for his behavior. And I mean, it makes sense. The Epidus complex, given how Eddie looked up to his mom and how strict she was, he wasn't allowed to have friends. He was, And he was basically told to promise that he would never marry or have relations with a woman. Because the women are a devil, Bobby Boucher. The devil! The article went on to say that even before his mother died, he had wished that he had been a woman instead of a man and even wondered if it would be possible to change his sex. Even he, he went as far as to even buy medical books and began to study anatomy and, and went as far as to contemplate performing the surgery on himself, but never following through with the plans. And it kind of makes you wonder because I remember in episode one, when I was talking about when the, when Augusta was pregnant and she gave birth to Eddie, how vastly disappointed she was because she did really want a girl. I, I wonder if when Eddie was growing up, if Augusta had made that comment to him like numerous times, like, oh, you pathetic child, only a mother could love you. If only you had been a daughter, then I wouldn't be so just hateful. I don't know. That That's my shitty Augusta game impersonation. Um, but yeah, it kind of makes me wonder if um, she had complained about Eddie being born a boy instead of uh, a girl. But you know, so all these res- all these revelations in the Chicago Tribune article just added more fuel to the media fire. People ate it up. For a while, the Ed Gein story was the only thing that anyone anywhere could talk about in the fall of 1957. But the real kicker here is that Eddie had not yet been examined by a psychiatrist. Everything that the journalist wrote in the Chicago Tribune article was conjecture even though he said it had come from a very credible source. Around this time, a 40-year-old writer, Robert Block, was living in Wisconsin, just 35 miles away from Plainfield in Wyoiga. The headlines and talk of the town, of course, circulated around the Gein case and the atrocities that he had committed. Block was an avid writer of mystery and horror, and he realized quickly that the Gein case was a first-rate tale of terror. He took the real-life horror story and began to write a tale of a shy young man who was a bachelor and was driven by his over-attachment to his tyrannical mother to commit horrible abominations to unsuspecting travelers who checked into his motel. The character he wrote was called Norman Bates, and the book was called Psycho. A few days went by, and Eddie was back in court where he was formally charged with first-degree murder and armed robbery. Judge Herbert A. Bund had ordered more protection for Gein out of fear of the public retaliating and possibly killing him before trial. Ed's attorney, William Bettler, had entered the plea of not guilty by reason of insanity. This was followed by District Attorney Klein's uh, recommendation to Judge Bund that Gein be sent to Central State Hospital for a sanity test before the trial date, stating, quote, Bernice Warden's body had been found hanging by its heels and dressed out like a deer. I don't know whether a person in his right mind would do that sort of thing or not, end quote. Judge Bund agreed and stated, it seems advisable under the circumstances, as related by both the counsel for the state and the counsel for the defendant, 
that expert determination be had whether he is now competent to stand trial. And off Eddie went to Central State Hospital for the Criminally Insane at Walpun for a 30-day examination and evaluation. While Eddie was being driven to Walpun, a meeting happened with Judge Bund, D.A. Clean, Washier County Board Chairman Errol Simonson, and the Village President of Plainfield, Harold Collins. During this meeting, they discussed the various issues that had sprouted in connection with the Gein case, such as the round-the-clock protection of Gein's home, the mounting cost of the investigation, as well as perhaps the most sensitive issue at hand, the issue of exhumation. Sheriff Wynerski had sneered at the grave-robbing story that Eddie had concocted, and he was not the only one who doubted it. The majority of the citizens of Plainfield just refused to believe that Gein's morbid collection of wearable skins had been assembled from their own dearly departed mothers, wives, and sisters. The sexton of the Plainfield Cemetery, which is a fancy word for grave digger kids, Pat Dana, what a delightfully ambiguous name, completely discounted Gein's story of grave robbing, saying that in the summer, it was just too busy at the cemetery for anyone to get away with messing around with the graves. Ray Gold, Plainfield's only mortician, was not as certain as Pat Dana, though. He said that not all caskets were sealed tight or placed inside concrete vaults. Many were set inside wooden boxes that were closed with eight or ten easily removable screws. Wooden coffins would be the easiest to open. And here is your funeral fact of the day, kids. There is indeed a difference between a casket and a coffin. Today, By today's standards, we in the United States use caskets, which can be made of either wood or metal um, and look like a rectangular box. A coffin, however, has a anthropoidal shape, meaning it tapers down to the feet and is wider along the shoulders. Think of your classic vampire coffin or really any old school 19th century or earlier funeral or, you know, really this time of year, like with all the Halloween decorations, you're probably going to see more caskets, depi- or, I'm sorry, coffins depicted than caskets. That, that's neither here nor there. Um, that's just, I always like to point that out, that there is truly a difference between a coffin and a casket. We return to our regular scheduled programming. As I've mentioned previously, the townsfolk of Plainfield found it easier to believe that Eddie Gein was a mass murderer than a ghoul. Clean wasn't concerned with the other bits, bobs, and body parts that were on earth at the Gein house. Eddie had already confessed to the murder of Bernice Warden, and he was more than happy to just take Eddie at his word for where the other parts came from, rather than getting into the whole mess that came with disinterment. Clean said it was at a press conference, quote, I want no part in opening any graves to prove anything. Just think how the poor relatives would feel, end quote. Honestly, I would rather have a peace of mind by knowing what had happened. So get your fucking shovel out, buddy, and start digging, you knob. I mean, who wouldn't just do the basic thing of just completing the fucking investigation? I mean, seriously. And as it turned out, more and more citizens of the small town wanted to know exactly what happened in the cemetery, and thus put clean under the pressure until something was done. The pressure resulted in Clean announcing to the press that, contingent on the permission of the next of kin, two graves would be opened at the Plainfield Cemetery. So on the morning of Monday, November 24th, 1957, just a week after Mrs. Warden's murder and Ed Gein's capture, 
the exhumations of remains began at Plainfield Cemetery. First up was the grave of Mrs. Eleanor Adams, a 52-year-old woman who had passed away in 1951. She had been buried in a wooden coffin that was enclosed in a wooden box, one row up from Eddie's parents, George and Augusta. When Eddie was asked if he had ever opened his mother's coffin, he just shook his head. Granted, Augusta's coffin was placed inside a concrete vault, so whether or not Eddie had tried and failed was something that he would not say. Present at the cemetery that Monday morning were D.A. Earl Clean, Sheriff Art Shelley, Deputy Arnie Fritz, Plainfield President Harold Collins, Mortician and Cemetery Director Ray Golt, Floyd Adams, husband of Eleanor, the widower, along with his son and son-in-law, Alan Vomilski from the State Crime Lab, along with two colleagues, and the two experienced grave diggers in Plainfield, Sexton Pat Dana and Assistant Director, and his assistant, Don Walner. What a crowd. It didn't take long for word to spread throughout the town of what was happening at the Plainfield Cemetery. And soon a flood of reporters came to the cemetery gates, hoping to get some photos of the macabre undertaking. There was even an airplane circling overhead with a cameraman from the Milwaukee Journal. The group of men attending the exhumation anticipated this and erected tents around the graves to prevent any of the reporters from taking photographs. A crust of snow had covered the ground that cold November morning, which was going to make digging difficult for Dana and Walner. Even so, the job of digging did not take long. It had only taken the two men an hour to get down to the coffin. The skeptics in the crowd who had scoffed at the idea of little Eddie Gein being able to dig down to the crypt did not take into consideration that coffins and caskets were placed inside grave liners whether made of wood or concrete, and with the top of these containers, it made it so that it was only under about two feet of soil and turf. Because of how quickly the two men were able to get to the grave, the observers concluded that a grave robber could have easily done his job in a fairly short amount of time. Eddie had even admitted to digging up the grave the same day it had been buried before it had even been completely filled in. When they reached the top of the box cover, they knew immediately that it had been tampered with, for it was split in two lengthwise. When the two pieces were removed, they saw the coffin of Mrs. Adams with some dirt scattered on top. The sexton opened the lid of the coffin. The men peered inside. All they saw was a 12-inch crowbar. Widower Floyd Adams later remarked to the crowd of reporters standing on the outskirts of the cemetery, held back by police, saying, Everything was there but the body. Crime Lab took the crowbar and photos were taken of the grave before it was refilled once more. Once that was done, the crew picked up and moved 30 yards across the cemetery to the grave of Mrs. Mabel Everson, who had passed away on April 15th, 1951 at the age of 69. Just as soon as digging began, the group already had the answers to their query. For only 15 inches below the surface, fragments of a body were found. A section of skull, jaw, part of a leg, along with other pieces. The officials knew that this would be all they would find of Mrs. Everson, but still they dug until they reached the wooden box cover again 
split in two. When they opened the coffin, there was nothing inside but the rotting coffin liner. Some men were left wondering about the bones they had found inside the coffin, to which Eddie had confessed that from time to time he had pangs of conscience where he would come back to the cemetery to return whatever body parts he had no use for. In all, the entire excavation took only two hours and a half. The stories that Gein had talked about were true. Since the passing of his mother, he had roamed the local cemeteries by night to try and fill the void of loneliness by looking for solace within the community of the dead. Humor often becomes a coping mechanism during dark times, and I'm sure to all of those out there who are listening, you're no stranger to morbid sense of humor, and, and probably you already have one. I mean, hello, you're listening to my podcast. There has to be something a bit off. Nothing personal. I mean, we can all just start our own member-only club, you know, rejoicing with our dark sense of humor. So when the news broke out of the crimes that were coming from Plainfield, jokes were being generated among the youngsters in Wisconsin called geeners. And maybe you've heard some of these before. These were like memes before their time. Here's a couple of them. Why did they have to keep the heat on in Ed's house? So the furniture wouldn't get goosebumps. Why won't anyone play cards with Ed Gein? He might come up with a good hand. Perhaps the most dazzling Geener that was told was not even a joke, but a poem. A reworking of Clement Moore's A Visit from St. Nicholas. Twas the night before Christmas, when all through the shed, all creatures were stirring, even old Ed. The bodies were hung from the rafters above, while Eddie was searching for another new love. He went to Atoma for a plain field deal, looking for love and also a meal. When what to his hungry eyes should appear, but old Mary Hogan in her new red brassiere. Her eyes, how they twinkled, ever so gay, and her dimples, oh, how merry were they. Her cheeks were like roses when kissed by the sun. She let out a scream at the sight of Ed's gun. Old Ed pulled the trigger and Mary fell dead. He took his old axe and cut off her head. He then took his hacksaw and cut her in two, one half for hamburger, the other for stew. In laying a hand in a side of her heel, up to the rafters went his next meal. He sprang to his truck, to the graveyard he flew. The hours were short, and much work must he do. He looked for the grave where the fattest one laid, and started in digging with shovel and spade. He shoveled and shoveled and shoveled some more, till finally he reached the old coffin door. He picked up the body and cut off her head. He could tell by the smell that the old girl was dead. He filled in the grave by moonlight above, and once more old Eddie had found a new love. He let out a yell as he drove out of sight. If I don't get caught, I'll be back tomorrow night. I mean, how catchy is that poem? And I think that it does a good job of showing the mythology of Gein and, and how it had grown around him and how the folk, folk, folklore, Jesus, how the folklore had transformed his crimes into something greater than what they were. Now, remember, Gein was never a cannibal. He never ate human flesh. 
just pork and beans out of a skull. Which, I mean, come on, who wouldn't want to eat the skulls of their enemies? Not that Mrs. Adams was Gein's enemy, but you know what I mean. You couldn't get away with any of these gainers or jokes in Plainfield, though. People gave a sharp look or a curt word whenever someone said something in passing about how Eddie's cookie jar was filled with lady fingers or that his favorite beer had lots of body but no head. This was not a laughing matter for the residents who had lived through this infamous nightmare. Eddie had been transported to the Central State Hospital for the Criminally Insane, which was a maximum security mental institution that took in men who were, for the most part, incurable, deranged inmates. It was founded in 1913 on 72 acres, but separate from the state prison. When Eddie arrived in 1957, there were just over 300 inmates. New arrivals such as Eddie were not allowed to participate in the normal day-to-day activities, such as reading magazines, watching TV, playing cards, or taking part in other various pastimes until they had undergone a prolonged observation period. Eddie was here to go through the court-ordered testing to see if he was stable enough to withstand trial, or if he was truly insane. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Now, I know I said earlier that I believe that there was a gray area surrounding the whole necrophilia bit, since Ed stated that he never had sexual relations with the corpses because he said, quote, they smelled too bad. In fact, Ed said that he did not have any sexual experience of any kind aside from masturbation. But according to the psychiatrists and psychologists who evaluated him, his cravings and compulsions of being with the dead fell under the category of necrophilia. Harold devotes an entire chapter on this subject, complete with stories and examples of necrophilia. And I will leave it to you guys out there to find your copy of Deviant and read chapter 32, should you wish. Yes, sickos. With how intense the investigation was proceeding, uh, with with countless sheriff departments across the state interviewing Gein, the digging of the graves, the 24-hour surveillance of the Gein farmstead, a very hefty bill was mounting that fell into Ashira County's lap, and they did not have the funds to continue. This prompted DA Earl Clean to state that the county could not continue to investigate every crime that Ed Gein may have committed. If he should be found sane, the county had more than enough evidence to convict him of the murder of Bernice Warden. Of course, officials at the state crime lab felt differently. They wanted to continue to investigate all that they could because they believed that even though Eddie's body part collection had been dug up at the local cemeteries, it did not necessarily rule out that his trophies could have been what was left of a murder victim. So, with this argument, the crime lab wrote an appeal to Governor Vern Thompson, and the governor stated that he was ordering Attorney General Stuart Honeck to be put in charge of the Gein investigation immediately. This was officially a statewide investigation, and Wisconsin was taking control of it. 
The first thing that Attorney General Honick did was to get Gein to take another polygraph test. The only thing that they were really able to learn this time around was that one of the nine bodies that Ed dug up was from the rural cemetery located in Hancock, which is about eight miles south of Plainfield. The test also confirmed that Ed did not dig up any male victims. On Friday, November 29th, another grisly discovery was found on the Gein property. A quarter mile away from the house, in a wooded area, a garbage trench was found that, according to some of Eddie's neighbors, said that he would be up there burying things during the day and night. And up, and up until about two weeks ago, they figured he was just burying garbage. So when authorities located the trench and began to dig around, it only took them 30 minutes until they came across bones scattered in the dirt and trash. As they dug, it was soon evident that there were some pieces missing. For example, only one foot was found, and there was no rib cage. Although it was speculated that the remains found in the trench were that of a possible missing local area man, the crime lab was able to confirm that the bones were of an adult woman who had died between 1947 and 1952 in the Plainfield area. Eddie's extensive series of physical and psychological tests began just two days after his admission to state Central State Hospital. The report was submitted to Judge Bund a week before Christmas. In the report, it states that the 51-year-old appeared to be in good health, in spite of a suspiciously enlarged lymph gland that, and that the overseeing physician wanted biopsied. After the physical examination came the standard standardized psychological tests, starting with the Weschler Adult Intelligence Scale. His verbal IQ was 106 and performance IQ 89, which equated to his full-scale IQ of being 99 that placed Eddie into the low-average category. I'm pretty sure that this was the same category of Gary Ridgway, the Green River Killer that we discussed, but because um, I know he was kind of like on the low end of the spectrum too. Uh, anywho, psychologist Robert Ellsworth was the examiner and assessed that Gein was of, quote, better than average intelligence, end quote, but functioning at an inefficient level. He goes on to say that Ed is not that of a well person, but of one with insufficient ego, immaturity, conflict concerning identification, and possibly the presence of illogical thought processes. More testing was done, such as the Bender Gestalt Designs, Rorschach, Thematic Apperception Test, the Minnesota Multifacet Personality Inventory, and other long-named, long-winded exams. In the end, Ed was diagnosed as having a schizophrenic personality with several neurotic manifestations. As the 30-day examination period came to a close, Eddie was brought before a panel of six doctors and specialists for one last round of questioning. The purpose of this meeting was to arrive at a consensus regarding his mental condition. When all was said and done, the medical and psychiatric records were accumulated into a package and forwarded to Judge Bund with a cover letter that summarized the final opinion of the staff. Here is that letter. Mr. Gein has been suffering from a schizophrenic process for an undetermined number of years. 
Although Mr. Gein might voice knowledge of the difference between right and wrong, his ability to make such judgment would always be influenced by the ex existence of mental illness. He would not be capable of fully realizing the consequences of any act because he would not be a free agent to determine either the nature of the consequence of acts which resulted from disturbed and abnormal thinking. Because of these findings, we must recommend his commitment to Central State Hospital as insane. The sanity hearing for Ed took place on Monday, January 6, 1958, in the city of Wisconsin Rapids. It's kind of weird to think about that my mom was not yet born. She would be born. She would come into the world one year and two days later in Wisconsin Rapids. So, holla to my family and to Wisconsin Rapids. When Eddie walked into the courtroom wearing brown slacks and a white shirt, he was almost unrecognizable because he had put on weight, thanks to the three hot meals a day he was getting at the state hospital. One by one, the doctors and psychiatrists who had examined Eddie over the course of his month-long stay at the hospital took the stand. They were questioned about their findings of the old man who sat silently chewing gum, gazing on impassively. When the questioning was over, Judge Bund was left with his verdict. In a matter of this kind, I must rely on the opinions of experts. I have no illusions, delusions, or hallucinations of the criticism of the court's decision, no matter what it would be. I can't see how my opinion can be anything other than to find this defendant insane. I so find him, and do by here recommit him to the Central State Hospital in Waupon for an indeterminate term of commitment. From the opinions of various experts, I think it is adequate for me to say that it does not appear that he will ever be at liberty again. And perhaps that is a desirable conclusion. That closes the hearing, and court is adjourned. So off Eddie went for the last time to Central State Hospital, where he would live out the rest of his days. Of course, the verdict pissed off a lot of people in Plainfield. They wanted vengeance. And even though Wisconsin didn't, and still does not, have the death penalty, they wanted Gein to pay for what he did. They thought that Eddie was getting off easy, as if he were on a permanent, all-expenses-paid vacation where he had a roof over his head and three meals a day, clothes, medical care, and access to TV. As pissed off as the town was, an appeal was never going to happen, though. An auction was to be held of the Gein estate to help pay the costs of the lawsuits for the surviving families. Nothing great came from the auction, though. The farmhouse burned to the ground the week before the auction was to take place. Remember who the fire marshal was in Plainfield? Bernice Warden's son, Frank. When Eddie, found, when Eddie was finally told of what had happened, all he said was, Just as well. The auction still went ahead as planned on Palm Sunday, which pissed off the residents of Plainfield even more. But nothing super exciting happened. Eddie's 1949 maroon Ford sedan was bought and turned into a sideshow amusement that 2,000 people paid a quarter to see at the Outagamie County Fair in Seymour, Wisconsin. That $500 in 1958 that Bunny Gibson of Rockford, Illinois had made on the Ed Gein Ghoul car 
would be about $4,438.72 in today's money. Of course, this sideshow attracting pissed off a lot of people in Wisconsin, and Gibbons was more or less run out of town and state. The auction of the estate only brought in $5,375, which would have been a little bit over $47,700 in today's money. Gotta love inflation. So here we are, old Eddie Gein just passing his days at Central State. He was a model inmate. Never, never made a fuss or a ruckus. In 1962, the remains of Gein's victims had been housed at the state crime lab for the last five years and were finally reinterred in a plot, unknown, where they would finally be at rest. Shortly after this, Governor-elect John Reynolds made a visit to the state hospital where he was given a tour of the institution. Reynolds was accompanied by a group of reporters, and as they spotted and as they stopped at the craft's workshop, there sat a small, gray-headed man, hunched over, polishing stones for costume jewelry. Reynolds walked up over to the man, shook his hand, and introduced himself, asking how the patient thought of the hospital. Oh, I'm, uh, I'm very happy here. It's a, it's a good place. Some people here are pretty disturbed, though. Governor Luck Reynolds nodded with understanding and told the man that it was nice to meet him, and then walked on. It was shortly after that encounter that one of the reporters informed Reynolds that he had just shaken hands with Ed Gein. In 1968, ten years after being committed to the Central State Hospital, Eddie was deemed fit to stand trial for the murder of Bernice Warden. And as you can imagine, the resurgence of the Gein case became a reporter's wet dream. The trial only lasted a week, though, and on Thursday, November 14, 1968, Ed Gein was found guilty of first-degree murder for the shooting of Bernice Warden. Following the verdict, the second part of the trial began, and this was to determine if Eddie was sane at the time of murder, to which he was found to be suffering from a mental disease and therefore was not found guilty by reason of insanity. So Eddie had been found guilty of first-degree murder of Bernice Warden and yet not guilty by reason of insanity all on the same day. And they say our judicial system isn't broken. <laughs> so Eddie was recommitted to Central State Hospital. Imagine the shock when six years later in 1974, Eddie filed a petition with the Warshire County Clerk of Courts that he was now, quote, fully recovered in his mental health and is fully competent, and this is no reason why he should remain in any hospital, end quote. The petition was reviewed by Judge Golmer, who had overseen the trial in 1968, and then was promptly shut down. In 1978, Gein was moved to the Mendota Mental Health Institute in Madison when, he, when the Central State Hospital was converted to a correctional facility. On July 26, 1984, 78-year-old Edward Theodore Gein died of respiratory failure after suffering from cancer. His body was transported back north to Plainfield, where he was buried in an unmarked grave with only a few employees of the Gasperic Funeral Home as witnesses. Eddie was finally with his mama again, for he was buried right next to her. Now, see, I've been to Plainfield, and I've actually been to the cemetery there. 
I did not know until I read Deviant that Gein was actually buried next to his mother. I thought he had been buried in some other undisclosed location because when you look at the Gein family plot, you know, there, there's Papa Gein with a marker, Mama Gein with a marker, an empty space, no marker, and then Brother Gein and, and, and marker. And as it turned out, well, Ed, Eddie did have a headstone for a period of time, but over the years, visitors would come and chip away little pieces of it until one day, some kids actually stole the headstone. I believe it was a band that had used the headstone as a prop during one of their shows. Um, I can't really, I don't remember where I heard that. Um, I can't really confirm that, but that, that I think might be what happened. Um, but the headstone was found a year later after it was stolen. Uh, it was recovered and is now in storage at the local sheriff's office. But yeah, what a crazy story, huh? I mean, I can definitely see how Ed Gein inspired, you know, the book and the movie Psycho, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Silence of the Lambs. I mean, he really has become like a pop icon, like it or not. But all right, we've talked long enough that we're going into an hour here. Let's wrap the shit show up, shall we? Let's get into Ed Gein's birthday and natal charts. This is what we're all here for, folks, right? True crime aside... Old Gein was born on August 27th, 1906 in La Crosse, Wisconsin, which of course makes him a Virgo. August 27th is the birthday of the humanitarian spirit. The greatest challenge is to overcome negative thinking, and the way forward is to realize that you cannot help the world by focusing on the negative things. As long as you focus on the world's negative events, you're only adding to them. Tie this to their power thought of, I keep my thoughts positive, my future is glorious. And that's a brilliant reminder just in general. I mean, you receive the energy you put out into the world. So it's always beneficial to try and maintain a high vibration of good energy. I mean, of course, you're going to have your good days and your bad days. But, you know, it's it's going to be conscious of, like, your thoughts and, you know, not only how you speak about other people, but how you speak about yourself. Eddie, as we've talked about over the last four episodes, really spiraled with his negative thinking. And I believe this had a lot to do with his upbringing. I mean, obviously, Augusta was not an easy woman to please or be around you know, top this with his schizophrenia, you, you can't really blame him so much for his negative spiraling thoughts. But I mean, we can absolutely blame him for acting on these impulses and not seeking help. Granted, it was the 1950s and, you know, mental health being what it was back in the day, probably not much better than what it is today. People born on this day of August 27th are very helpful and can be found doing charity work because they have a huge humanitarian spirit. And Ed was no stranger to helping a neighbor out or taking on the odd job around town. The key to their happiness will depend on whether or not they can allow the world to give back to them as well, which I'm not so sure Eddie really experienced this. Maybe later in life when he was institutionalized and was getting the proper care and treatment um, he needed. These folks are happiest when they're making others happy, which can be a very slippery slope to be on. They can be very self-sacrificing and can become surprised or hurt when others are not as accommodating. Their success, however, can be limited by their tendency to be disillusioned as seeing the world as an unhappy, negative place. And gee, when you have a mother like Augusta, whose whole life sermon was preaching about the sins of the world, and especially women, because they are the devil, it's no wonder that Eddie thought that the world was a truly horrific place, or that women like Mary Hogan and Bernice Warden were to be hunted and harvested like deer. 
Something that is noted in the birthday encyclopedia that I'd like to point out is this, quote, after the age of 25, there is a turning point when there is an increased need of partnership or relationships with others, with the possibility of exploring literary, artistic, or creative outlets in some form, end quote. So this is interesting because Eddie's mama made it a point to tell her boys never to marry and never ever succumb to the sins of the flesh. So when Augusta died, Eddie did as his mama told him and never had relations with a woman. But that left a void in his life, especially after she died, which directed him to build his fantasy life involving the dead. The bodies he dug up would become his artistic and creative outlets. And I think all Eddie wanted was to be needed. And he wanted someone, especially his mother. He tried so desperately to make her happy when she was alive, but yet he always seemed to fail. On the dark side, those who are born on August 27th are driven, depressive, and aloof. But at their best, they are generous, altruistic, and hardworking. I don't really understand why driven is considered a dark trait here, but, you know, whatever. So let's break down his natal chart. When we look at his natal chart, Saturn and Uranus were both in retrograde, which when you compare that to some of the other killers we have covered, it isn't a lot. I mean, we have had other killers that we've discussed already that have had five to, I think, six planets in retrograde, and Gein only has two. Obviously, his son is in the sign of Virgo, as we discussed and all the way back in part one. Virgo is like order. They are an earth sign and thus very practical and grounded. But when you're suffering from mental diseases such as schizophrenia, these personality traits that are associated with the signs can go right out the window. Because as we discussed, when officers went into Gein's house, it was such it, it was in such a state of squalor. It would have been it would have probably driven any Virgo mad. Gein's moon sign is in the sign of Sagittarius, which makes people with the same moon sign very adaptable to different kinds of personalities or strange places. I wonder if that also means that they are very good at having multiple personalities. Although I think that's different than schizophrenia. I don't know. I'll have to ask my mom that. She's a therapist here. Anyhow, in order for these people to feel safe, they need to have something to believe in, some philosophy, goal, or mission that gives their life meaning. And although they may feel full of optimism in the company of others, when they're alone, they can feel empty. Again, this kind of goes hand in hand with the whole needing to please others. So if we take what we've discussed about Ed Gein, uh, we can conclude that he believed in his mother and her doctrine that the world was a scary place and women were not to be trusted. When his family died, one by one, he was alone and the dark emptiness of his life and illness really began to take over. So he filled this void with the dead because they couldn't reject him. Gein's chart has a perfect balance of masculine and feminine signs and is evenly spread amongst the four elements. So in the end, when it comes to his particular to his particular chart, yes, I'm sure he exhibited some of the classic Virgo characteristics, especially as a child growing up, you know, with the need to please and and, and, and all that. But with his tyrannical mother, alcoholic father, and mental disease consuming his life, the elements of astrology were, for our purposes here on the show, probably muted. And that's okay because in the end it's all relevant, right? Well, finally, after an hour and four episodes, we're finally going to wrap up this epic saga of Edgeen Vile Virgo. 
as always, I want to thank you guys so much for your time in listening to Murder is My Sign. Please, please, please be sh- uh, share this podcast with anyone you can, any way that you can. Murder is My Sign can be found on Amazon, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting app. You can support the show by buying your plot in the boneyard at patreon.com backslash murder is my sign, just like my amazing patrons Jake, Michelle, and Crystal. Stay up to date on what's going on with Murder is My Sign by following me on social media, Twitter, Instagram, Twitch, and YouTube, all at Jordy Death. That's J-O-R-D-Y Death. But if you're old school and you want to email the show directly, you can do so at murderismysignpodcast at gmail.com. Stay tuned for the final episode of Murder Is My Sign Season 1, when we cover the sign of Libra, thus completing our circuit around the sun from when this podcast originally began almost a year ago. Join us then, won't you? Until then, take care of yourself and each other. And rest in peace. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.